right. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Stories of Selling Human podcast. I'm your host, Alex Smith. And you know, I started this podcast because I believe everyone in the world will someday be faced with a situation, could be business, could be personal, that requires you to create change. I think we all want to be heard, seen, and understood, but the people who get our attention and persuade or influence us, they're not just salespeople. I think there are great human beings throughout all walks of life that we're drawn to. I'm going to share their stories here uh, so that we can tap into what makes us human, practice our human skills, and ultimately, we'll all become better at selling by being human. Gang, this is uh, this is somebody I've been waiting to meet for a like just talk to in this podcast for a long time. On a personal level, this dude is married. He's a father. He's a grandfather, a brother, elder. Uh, he likes the drums, cigars, cognac, scotch. Uh, little Raheem Devon. He'll you'll find him listening to on his on his uh, iPad or on his iPhone. And he's going to, you know, this guy professionally, folks, is a diversity strategist, owns his own company around diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, a risk mitigator. And I love this, how he described himself on a podcast I listened to, a person who tries to agitate with an activist-like effort to challenge people to look at diversity and inclusion differently uh, or to chase a narrative uh, and to get away uh, and chase a narrative that is not common, not easy not traditional, really to push people to wrestle with what it means to be human. What a great, uh, great, um, you know, description of this person's why. I just am so pleased to welcome none other than Torin Ellis. To the tacos, 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 tacos are like the only thing missing from that incredible introduction. I mean, you hit it, cognac. Scotch cigars, my man Raheem Devon. I can tell you a story about Raheem. He's been like in my playlist. If if we go old school on folks, you remember when you had the CD changer in your whip? Um, he's been inside of my CD changer and the whip. He's been inside. And for those of you who don't know what a whip is, that is a car, uh, yes. a vehicle, yes, automobile. Um, but you know, I like to call it the whip or the buggy. He's been inside of um, the buggy. I mean, since 2000 and I want to say three. Mm. And when I say he's been in, like there are two or three artists that I have not taken out of rotation. Raheem Devon, Jill Scott, mm, wow. um, and I'm probably the third one would be Layla Hathaway. Like, Ooh. well, I mean, Not no matter good. what I'm doing. What mood? Always. But you know what that is? Love, like all three of them, sing, talk, operate, emit a deep degree of love. And so that's who I am. Like, yeah, I do DNI and I do diversity strategy and I agitate and I try to break down risk or avert risk. I do all of the things that you said, but I do all of that with a deep, deep, deep degree and tetheredness to love. So thank you ever so much, Alex, for, for having me on the show. Unfortunately, we can't enjoy tacos, but that's the one other thing about me that you should know. I absolutely love tacos. I love it. I got a great joke for you that I just put on LinkedIn. Someone else like tacos. You want to hear it? So, uh, <laughs> Torin, if you don't like tacos, I'm not your guy. 
Yeah, that's a dad joke. <laughs> okay, that is a dad joke, but but it's still the, funny. It's the good. heart, the heart of the podcast. So let's move move to the question I've been asking everybody lately, and it could go to a lot of, a lot of different directions. And uh, it's really getting to the essence, the heart of like what it means. And I think what you just said, it's like when I titled this podcast like "Stories of Selling Human," I, I really was trying to get at you know these like beyond these stereotypes. What I believe people think. Uh, sales to, to be, what make connecting with others to be. And so if I asked you, Torin, when you hear that phrase, selling by being human, what does that mean to you? What is that, like, what ideas does that spark for you when I hear it, when I tell that uh, phrase to you? It, 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 it means to me when, when my father used to go to work, uh, when I was in my teens, and he would put an announcement up on the cork board in their break room. He worked for Sears and Roebuck. Um, and for those of you who don't know this quick fun fact, Sears and Roebuck got started as a diversity and inclusion play. Mm. That's all I'm going to say. Oh. Just do the research and understand why Sears and Roebuck got started. You will understand their connectedness to the inclusion piece of DNI. My father would put a note up on the cork board and he would say, uh, the note read, my son will cut your grass for $7, no matter where you are in the city. At the time, I lived in Davenport, Iowa, fairly small city. You could probably get from one end of town to the other in a vehicle under 20 minutes. Um, but that human piece for me was him teaching me responsibility and showing up no matter where it was, no matter who it was for, he's mm -hmm. advertising me that I would cut the grass. I didn't knock on the door. I didn't build the rapport or initially. I had to go into a, a relationship, so to speak, a scenario that's better that my father curated for me, but I had to show up with respect, with some degree of openness, uh, just Grooming all of that when I was young, 12, 13, 14. I remember scooping ice cream for Baskin Robbins. Again, when I'm growing up, friends laughed at me like, oh, you got to go to that job thing. You know, you're 16, 17 years old and you're wearing a tight pink polo shirt and you're scooping ice cream. What they didn't know is that because of my years of cutting grass and delivering newspapers and working in Godfather's Pizza, by the time I got to uh, Baskin Robbins and I'm scooping ice cream with a smile and I'm able to be a conversationalist, if you will, I actually had a man who said, well, what is it that you like to do? And I told him the things that I used to do, cutting grass and whatnot. And he said, you know, I really like you. He said, I'm willing to give you, and I can't remember the number at the time. I think it was $500 or $1,000, something. But this man was willing to buy me a number of lawnmowers so I could start a lawn care business. That doesn't happen to every 16, 17-year-old. And so I took all of that, Alex, when I was growing up, all of those examples straight to the military, straight to corporate America, and into what it is that I do right now. So for me, just that, that 
that that love for humanity and being a people person, if you will. And I'm really an introvert. You know, part of the reason why I love Raheem and music is because it's my escape. It's what allows me to get away from the phone calls, the consulting engagements, the coaching mandates. The music allows me to get away from all of those things. And what I know is that um, I feel like we had more people that were operating like me and on this frequency, we wouldn't have issues like Buffalo and Mm. so many others that we can relate Mm. to. Mm. Wow. Um, Thank you for saying that. I I completely uh, agree. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, no matter what differences we are on the outside or what you may perceive or, you know, what you may even perceive as total disrespect or like kind of fear, uh, we are so much inside the same, you know, DNA is only a little, you know, it's a big part of what makes us different, but you know, you have a brain, I have a brain, I have a nose, you have a nose, I have eyes, we have eyes, we have a heart together. I mean, we're, uh, I think I talked before my dad, we're, we're, he always believed there was just this interconnected web of existence. That's his, he was raised as a Unitarian universalist. People are like, what the hell is that? That's not a religion. No, it really isn't about finding truth in a, you know, maybe one book or God or something like that, but, you know, finding, uh, just knowing that, you know, there is, there's just this, this humanity, this connectedness that we're all a part of. And, and, and when you tap into that, a lot of people don't, you know, know how to tap into that, but it seems like you did at an early age. I don't know what you did. Yeah, and, and when you speak of the, the whole religion piece, the, you, I, I challenge people and I ask them, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that, that does this, but I always challenge people who who try to, um, to lodge and to, to lay their belief system on top of mine or others in the sense of, like, who are you? Like, how audacious you must be to believe that you can define who God is. Like, just like, like you can tell another group of people, I don't care what that number is, one, a hundred thousand, that you can tell a group of people that God is this person or in this way or believes this or operate, how in the world is it that you are that audacious that you know and can define this higher power? Yeah. I, I'm, I always find that to be fascinating. Yeah, it is. When, when, when to me, it's so much easier to just simply say, okay, Alex, you, you got a relationship with the most high? Cool. Like, as long as your relationship doesn't tell you to go out and knock old ladies over their head, take their handbag, uh, run up in people's homes and take the belongings and items that they've worked extremely hard for, um, grab their children and, you know, do something nefarious. To, as long as your religion is not telling you to do those things, I don't care if your religion tells you don't celebrate a particular holiday. I could care less if your religion says um, don't eat, you know, a certain uh, fish or whatnot from the sea because they, I don't care about that. 
if that's your belief, like, cool, it's, it's not hurt me in any way, which is why I wonder why so many people have an issue with the LGBTQ community and their ability to get rights and have access and some of the other things. Like, why does it matter to you how they choose to live their life if what they are doing is between them and somebody else and has nothing to do with you? Like nothing. I we, we spend far too much time, in my opinion, and I'll be quiet. We spend far too much time trying to impose our will, our belief, when it's questionable at best on other people. I, I just think mm-hmm. that we do that too much. I, I agree. So I want to take the, that point that you made and maybe take it back to what you, I feel like you, cause you've had this learned in you, this wasn't, you know, innate, maybe it was, you can talk about whether it was, but I feel like you learned it way back at a, that early age. Um, because I, I agree uh, people sometimes, I think it's an identity thing because it's like there, there is that fear that you're taking away my identity maybe by, by being different or having opposing views or whatever we can get into. That's a whole other, you know, uh, podcast. But talk, I want to go back to something you said earlier about respect, um, you know, learning things like respect. Um, and I bet at an early age, I have to imagine if you anybody out there has been in a customer service job, I, I do believe services sales. When you serve people, you are in customer service, you're doing a waiter job or working at a Baskin Robbins. You're absolutely like there are probably millions of people that are working at a lawn cutting business that don't get offered a whole track a fleet of lawnmowers, you know, so you did something right. That was, you, you didn't, you weren't trying to do that. It was just, that's, it was just put upon you. And I imagine that's only one example of things that you were just being you and things were given and came out of the, like the, the universe to you that you never saw coming, even business today that you never saw coming. You were just being you. So I, my question goes to, you know, learning respect, because I imagine that has to be learned through having disrespect put on you and how you handled that maybe. So talk to me about like the, you know, kind of how you learn how to have respect for people, even when they may, you know, maybe when you feel like they don't have any respect for you or they're treating you wrongly or whatever. How did you learn some of that stuff at at an early age? You know, how to to treat people? Yeah, so uh, I would say first and foremost, I, I, I mean, it'd be irresponsible for me to give any of that credit to any entity or person outside of my parents. They are primary. They are um, they are the individuals that instilled the foundation that you see today. Like I will stand in rooms and hit microphones, Alex, and I will say I stand in this place because I had two parents that loved me. Like I pay homage to my mother and to my father. My father's gone, but I pay homage to my parents often um, and certainly whenever I'm thinking about that. So Number one, uh, that foundation was instilled in me. Uh, and it was never done from a standpoint of less than. Like my father, my mother, they never told myself or my sisters that we had to be twice as good. They never mm-hmm. used language like we were a minority ever. They never did that. My mom worked three jobs when I was growing up, you know through my formulative years, but they never said to us that we were poor or the, that we didn't have. They never made us feel like we, we were less than anyone else. 
my mother and father always treated me like I was a young king, always treated my sisters like they were young queens. So that's the first piece. I would say the second thing for me that kind of had me to understand I'm going to need to move through this life a little bit differently. The, the second event was probably Mr. Quinn. And I'll never forget Mr. Quinn because when I lived in Davenport, Iowa, about seven houses up the block, he uh, lived on the right-hand side of Gaiman Street. And when I had my paper route and would deliver the newspapers, back then we had to go and collect the money. We had no Venmo, no PayPal, no Square. I've, I've, I've been there, yeah. I've, I've yeah, not delivered papers myself. Yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. You, you had to knock on the door. You had to go get <laughs> your chips. You had to go get your chips. And so I knocked on the door. And all I remember, Alex, is the door opening, shotgun being drawn. No. And the cat said, he called me the N-word. I won't, I won't curse yeah, on you. thank you. Oh, my. And he said, um, if you ever knock on my door again, I'm going to shoot you. Wow. I was 12. Um, I didn't tell my father. Like to this day, if my father were still here, he doesn't know about this event. Oh, wow. Because I never knew how my father would handle it. And I had already kind of seen enough even at 12, I'd seen enough that while I didn't have a way of describing it, defining it, I still knew that life was a little bit different for people of my complexion. I knew that life was a little bit different in a place called Davenport, Iowa, for people of my complexion. I didn't tell my father because I just didn't know how he would handle that scenario. But I did tell my supervisor. I don't know how I told it. I can't remember. I don't want to make up the story. But what I know is that my supervisor said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll just collect the money another way. I'm 12. So, okay, cool. If that's what it is, I ain't got to knock on the doors. And, and, and what I haven't said is Mr. Quinn was a big dude, like 6'2", six, 6'3", six, good country, good country boy, big guy. Big guy. But I was like, okay, cool. They're going to get the money some other way, whatever. I go on about my business. Now, mind you, whenever I would run up the street, ride my bike up the street, my motor scooter up the street, I'd always look at that house on the right to make sure I ain't got no issues. Even today, Alex, five years ago, up to about five, six years ago, I used to go running 12 at midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning. I stopped doing it because I said, my safety is at risk. I don't want any problems. There's a house that I run next to, even in the daytime, Confederate flag, Confederate flag on their vehicle. Every single time I run by that home, I am aware and alert. alert. You better believe it. All because of Mr. Quinn and a couple of other events in my life. And so I'm telling you, yeah, I'm a little bit different now at 53. You can run out that house if you want to. I'm not moving the way that I moved back then when I was 12. But my point is, I'm still alert. 
And so I know that, you know, even though there are people out here who have ill feeling towards me or others from um, my race or other groups, I don't move through life allowing them to commandeer or to command my frequency. Mm. My frequency Mm. is my frequency. And I show up, like I said at the beginning, with a great deal of love until you need otherwise. And if you need otherwise, I'm prepared to give it to you. Mm. Wow, that's strong. Wow. Like, I I know so many people could easily go on the other way than like, you know what? You know, it's just easier. Like, it's not, I'm not ever going to, they're all the same. You know, there's probably something within people that, you know, if it's not Mr. Quinn, you got some of Mr. Quinn in you or something like that, you know, and I'm just going to not even pay attention to you or you, or I'm just going to assume the worst of you, you know, and go the other direction. But you kind of went the other way as saying, Hey, uh, you don't get to commandeer my, the way I live. uh, And I'm going to lead with, with love and, and, you know, man, that's a lot to learn at a, at a young age. I, I would, I would say. Um, yeah, but, you know, put that in perspective, Alex. You know, put that in perspective. What's a young age? Yeah, true. Well, Hold on for a second. What we... Because what I'm saying is, if I'm learning that at 12, and then I'm still dealing with scenarios at 17 and 18 when I go into the military, and I'm dealing with scenarios at 25 when I go on an interview, um, and I don't get called back because I have long hair or at 30, when I leave corporate America and, you know, the director of my building says he can't trust a black man with hair on his face. And I have one of the top 70 teams out of 700, but you can't trust me. So at 30, I'm still learning a lesson. What's a young age? What's the young age when I'm being um, excluded from vending, I'm sorry, bidding opportunities because I'm a black owned firm. I'm 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 losing multi-million dollar deals in 2011. In 2011, because a white woman says that she wants to uh, file an EEOC and um, Mm -hmm. discrimination case against me. And so my -hmm. client severs ties with me. I'm like on track to make multiple seven figures gone. So what's a young age? Yeah. When at this point I'm 53. And it seems like I continue to be reminded of this learning. Does that make sense? Yeah, for hundred percent. So like, it's, it's kind of with you. So it's always something, yeah, you kind of, um, you know, I know that's why you got into this work. So maybe we can kind of like, you can kind of help people understand, you know, one, let's first talk about like how you convince, you know, um, just, like not even corporations. I, I I want you to convince like just the everyday person that, you know, maybe be on the other side that didn't have that experience, right? Like that's had a like quote unquote easier upbringing, you know, where they didn't experience, you know, um, uh, like uh, losing out on opportunities or gosh, like, you know, uh, life-threatening opportunities because of the color of their skin. And they don't, they go, that's not really like, it's not the sixties. It's not the fifties. We've made so much progress. Where does the conversation go from you so that it's out of a place where that person doesn't feel, or 
you know, that you can, you know, open the conversation and get them to listen. Cause you know, some people, if they haven't experienced it, they can't connect to it. It's just, you know, out of their periphery. Um, how do you, uh, like start with the, the person maybe that just isn't in this work, um, doesn't necessarily have to be, um, the person making decisions for their company. They're just, a an ordinary, uh, maybe just a regular employee. Why does this work matter? And, um, maybe we can get into kind of how you position the work you do and uh, your approach to, uh, on the business side. Yeah. I will just say, you know, the work matters. And I think, I think it matters because of how I do the work. You know, there are mm-hmm. some who do the work and it matters to them because they, they, um, in a way they want to be right. Um, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. for them consulting or doing a particular training or, you know, uh, facilitating a certification, uh, event, they do these things because they want to be right. They want to be successful, if you will. Um, if you look at my Twitter profile, I said, you know, I'm chasing greatness. You can have success. I could care less about being successful. I don't care so much so about being right. I care about being more human. And so I do this work because I'm challenging people, as you said in the introduction, I want you to wrestle with what it means to be human. And so when you think about individuals who grew up with an immense amount of privilege, um, always having access, even the poorest of white people have more access than some of the most successful black people and Asian people and people that are in the LGBTQ community and most certainly folks from the disability community. And I can keep going. So, you know, when you think about growing up and not having to deal with some of those impediments, some of those um, roadblocks, um, it's hard for you to, to tend to understand what other people are going through. And so I try to appeal, I try to appeal to calling folks in rather than necessarily putting them on blast. And just getting them to understand that a condition of progress is to allow those that are suffering to speak their truth. Everyone can't be lying. So now it's on you to try to say to yourself, if I have some degree of relationship with Alex, then I'm trusting that what he's telling me is the truth. Like if I don't know Alex from another Alex, I don't know Alex from a can of paint, then you can give me this downtrodden, this story of challenge, this story of triumph, whatever the story is, I don't really know you. So it's hard for me to really process whether or not you're telling me the truth. But if I have relationship with you, some degree of rapport, some degree of trust, at some point, I got to say to myself, I don't think this cat is lying. And and even if I do think that he's kind of hyperbolic, maybe fabricating it a little bit, the other five people that said exactly the same thing, are, are they, I mean, so I just think that as individuals, we have to find in ourselves that space. There's a space inside of all of us where we can question, do I really believe what it is that I think that I believe? 
And is there a possibility for the narrative to be different? Is there a possibility for what is being told to me to actually be the truth? Like we right now are celebrating. I mean, with without regard, we are celebrating to no end artificial intelligence and blockchain and platform companies and billionaires going out of space. We, I mean, just happy about all of these things. And yet when these billionaires come back down to earth, we got babies in cages. We got folks in states that can't vote. We got uh, automobile plants opening up in Detroit, Michigan, who already have fucked up water. And now they <laughs> yeah, are dealing with sad. other, you know, other experiences of climate change and uh, climate um um racism if you will it's crazy how we focus on so much of the things that distract us and we have less attention for the things that bind us and humanity is what binds us together yeah wow so you know when you're like now when you're your approach and I don't know how different it is from other DEI and consultants of why this work matters uh talk to me about you know, kind of how you teach executives to wrestle what it means to be human at work. What is that approach for you? Yeah, first and foremost, I tell them you got to be accountable. You got to be accountable for yourself. You have to show up and be willing to model what inclusion looks like, what helping others to belong looks like. You have to be willing to model what it looks like to lend other people your privilege. Like we know you can walk into a room and you can command all of the attention, suck all of the air out of the room just by the mere fact of you crossing over that threshold. But you have to be willing to take a back seat, to sit in the back of the room, to sit at the table and be quiet, to defer to other people who have things that they can contribute, to reach out to the folks that are silent in the room and bring them into the conversation. That's what modeling good inclusion and belonging and equity it looks like. So so first and foremost, be willing to model what good DNI looks like. Second, hold the people that report to you accountable for doing exactly the same. Like nothing in what I just said has anything to do with technology. Nothing. So when we are rushing out saying that we need to make these major investments in technology or that we have to do an incredible job of bringing in, you know, a team of high powered, high priced consultants or that we have to. No, it it just requires that all of us really not get away from the basic blocking and tackling of just being a really, really good human. So model good DNI, hold people accountable be willing as a leader to be emotionally available and vulnerable. Like you are not Superman. You are not superwoman. You are human. You have emotions and you can be vulnerable. And when you exercise and exhibit those two characteristic traits, you actually bring people in. When people can see, wow, this matters to you, or I absolutely appreciate you sharing that story, that truth, being that transparent. I can relate to that. While maybe not in the same scenario, I have a situation similar to that. Wow, I think I might be facing something like that. 
You know what? By the mere fact of you doing these two things, I feel more comfortable telling you something that I'm struggling with at this moment. And that kindredness begins to form. And so we have better leaders inside of our organizations. There's a reason why the reports say that women make better leaders than many and most men, because they are more motherly. They are more caring. They are more open. They are more accessible. Why as a man can you not be that? You can. It's merely a question, but you can be that. And so that's the way that I show up. I'm not showing up to try to... um, to be punitive and punishing. I'm going to be direct, but I'm showing up in every way, Alex, to try to keep more people involved, more people under the tent. Because if I can get more people involved and under the tent and moving with the same cadence and the frequency, or even if their cadence and their frequency is different, are we in the same hymn book? Are we in the same sheet of music? You know, like, you might be down a little bit further because you, you know, your rhythm was a little bit different than mine. You, you know, we know the deal. I don't care. As long as we're moving in the same direction, I'm happy with that. So I try to show up and keep people in the conversation rather than putting them on the periphery of the mm. conversation. Interesting. So when you're in this conversation, tell me about those times when people think that they're doing the best work, they're doing their thing, they're doing all the right things. But you notice from, you know, your expertise and as a DNI consultant that, you know what, the, the work you're doing is, is just kind of table stakes. It's scratch, scratching the surface. It's, it's not real, the real work. Um, tell me how you agitate in a way that, you know, connects or lands with people so that, again, it's not like, you know, punitive, as you say, and, and, and maybe in, in nature. Yeah, I remember an insurance company up in New York, uh, they reached out to me and uh, I think I said it earlier in the conversation, I ran, built and ran a highly successful sales team for MCI communication. So, you know, there's a portion of me that, you know, every once in a while folks will tap into me and say, can you come down? Like I've gone to Jamaica, I've gone to other states to train or to inspire, develop sales teams, if you will. Cool. So this insurance company in 17 said, we want you to come talk to our national sales team. We'll fly you down to Orlando. I think it was Orlando or some, it was somewhere in Florida. We'll put you up in a nice hotel. We just want you on day number two to speak to our national sales team about diversity and inclusion. And sales, can you marry those two topics together? Sure. I said, but what's happening on day one of the conference? And they said, well, on day one, all of the leadership is getting together. Day one is the leadership. Day two are all the salespeople. We want you to come on day two. Um, <laughs> I want to come on day one. And they were like, well, why do you want to do that? I said, because the leadership they hold the power. They are the ones who can designate and allocate the resources, the support. They can help maneuver and make space for the salespeople that want to perhaps do more in DNI or avert some of the plans that they've had in place and try something different. That approval comes from leadership. 
I want to talk to leadership on day number one. I'm not charging you anything extra. I just want to talk to them. And I'll talk to the other folks on day two. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and they're not ready for that direct conversation. And so, you know, fast forward, and I think it was like 2019, it might have even been 2020, when I talked to someone else from the organization. The only thing that they had done around diversity and inclusion from, I'll say, 17 to 19 or 20 was they bought Cuban food for their office in Miami. That's it. What's that supposed to do? It's just kind of uh, placating the topic or something. So when you ask me, what do I do? I I try to make sure that I get individuals, get teams, get organizations to understand that diversity and inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are far more important than your performative activity, than your donning cultural attire, bringing in ethnic dishes or celebrating a particular day, putting a certain whatever on your social media feed. It is far more important. Humanity and support of humanity are far more important than you just topically brushing over the subject of DNI. That is what I tell them. And I get them to understand that because I always paint a picture if the roles were reversed. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, it's not hard for people to understand when I say if the roles were reversed, like all I need you to do is think about how you and your organization, how you and your business unit, your department or your team, how you've approached subject matter of diversity or equity or inclusion or belonging or representation or access to opportunity or being promoted, or being supported by a mentor, or having resources. I don't care what the scenario is. If the role was reversed, how might you show up in the workplace? And when they're honest, Alex, it's a different conversation. So again, I'm including them in the conversation and not categorizing them as being the bully, the monster, the bad person. I want them to know you are part of this definition of inclusion. Yeah. Well, you know, I love that perspective because the that that just looking at it is kind of like it's a it's a way to, you know, uh, use empathy in your conversation but make you think through it, not just like if you were in their shows, but if you were, took the the role, like not just the person, but actually the role of how you show up and and change that, how you how might you show up? It helps you kind of think through that critically, um, and I and I really uh, you know love how you frame that up. So, like to end off, like what is your message? Because we're just coming off one of the most tragic events in our country's history in Buffalo, and just it's it's more if it, it feels just more the same. Like you know, just you think of South Carolina and you think of Charlottesville, you think of all these things, and it, when is enough enough? So. And, and people go, well, that's just too dangerous to talk about at work. I don't see really the business um, point of talking about that stuff. Um, you know, I can't connect it to ROI. I can't, uh, I don't even know where to start, Torin. So just to end off, how do you 
like, you know, help organizations kind of change the mindset around talking about these vulnerable topics and maybe even, you know, I don't know, it's a whole cultural thing as well um, to talk about these things, but how do you talk it in a way that really benefits the team in a, in a workplace or should they even be talked about in the workplace? Yeah, I, I, I would say that um, not having a strategy or making space for conversations around inclusion and representation and perhaps other letters of that acronym, I, I would say that it is placing the organization at risk, seriously, of major litigation. We have a phenomenal um, automobile company. Again, I won't name them because I don't want to do anything that hurts your podcast. Just paid like a 100, I want to say $166 million lawsuit because employees were um, scribbling um, racial epithets in the elevator, calling this particular person racial epithets. Same major employer. Um, fired a manager and then rehired that manager two weeks later uh, when it is noted and documented that that person was egregious, that they were aggressive, that they were biased and discriminatory and prejudiced and racist. So you can no longer continue to provide cover for individuals that are toxic and uh, challenging what it looks like to have good work relationship. I think more people are leaning on the side of, no, I'm gonna speak up. Even if it results in sacrifice, I may not be as lucky as that individual or as fortunate, I shouldn't say lucky. I may not be in the position of that individual who won their lawsuit and it may cost me my job, but I'm gonna speak up. I tell people often, Alex, the reason why we had Me Too and Time's Up is because HR people protected the organization and not the people. I think people are going to say, no longer are we going to allow HR to protect the organization. No longer am I going to sit in silence, suffer in silence by leadership, by managers, by people in authority that are going to um, accost me, um, harass me, assault me. It's just not going to happen. More and more people are going to speak up, and I'm glad about it. I want to see organizations taken to the cleaners. Like I want you, I want people to bankrupt entities that are allowing people to fly under the radar or that are providing leaders cover, knowing that they are toxic to the organization, but because they provide revenue or they have some sort of special mental acumen or whatever it is, we we continue to just kind of sweep it away and ignore it. Nah, I want to see employees, people as individuals to speak up. So that's the one thing that I'll leave people with. People are exercising their voice and I'm loving every single moment of it. That's great. Well, you know, the two, just to end off, because I could talk to you for a while, just, you know, kind of um, that, that person out there that's maybe struggles to connect in a way that you do with people, uh, you know, maybe like helping them, how would you help people just become a better people person? What are some things that they could do tomorrow uh, to really just, you know, kind of do that work to be a, you know, better people person to to all people, not just people that look like them? Yeah. So if I hadn't said it, I'll say it again. Empathy, intentionality, proximity, 
and transparency, four guiding pillars, words for me that I use to kind of, um, they're like my equilibrium in, in doing this work. And, and somehow throughout the day, you know, it's it's like that little graph on your, uh, what do you call it, your tuner when your radio station yeah. is playing and the little lines will go up and down. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm more empathetic than having to be intentional. Other times I need to be extremely transparent. I found instances, Alex, where, you know what, my transparency is going to derail the conversation because the transparency that mm. I give mm. may center me in the story and I don't need to be centered. I need to keep the focus on the individual. So I need to be a little less transparent, a little less about me and just be more inquisitive and curious about who they are. And so what I would say to people, number one, empathy, intentionality, proximity, and transparency will help them to be more of a people person, if you will, a magnet to talk about them, focus on them. Second thing that I would say do, have fun watching interviews. doesn't matter what space it's in. It could be in the business space. It could be in the sports space, entertainment space, whatever space it's in. Watch people that are engaged in conversation and interviewing. Listen to podcasts like this one right here and Crazy and the King and some of the others. Let me tell you something. You want to hear something really interesting? Go listen to like one of our podcasts from year number one at Crazy and the King with Julie and I, and then go listen to one that we just did in 2022. And Julie will get on me for saying this, but she's also going to love me for saying it. Huge difference in how we bond with one another. But if you listen closely, a huge difference in how comfortable she is on the mic now versus how comfortable she was in 2019. Trust me when I tell you. So if you just listen to other people in conversation with others, you'll start to pick up little cues and questions and cadence and interrupting and not interrupting and just going back and forth and immediately coming into the podcast with energy and it not feeling all sterile and sanitized. Go back and listen to how you and I started. You, it wasn't laborious. It wasn't a big lift on you to get into this conversation because I love people. That's why. Yeah. And you brought it before I click play, my man. So, or click record. <clears throat> As we end off, I ask people uh, all the time, you probably gave us a lot of stuff, man, but uh, it's a fun question to get to people to know you and connect with you and to bring the essence of you out. And it's just a fun question. So Torin Ellis, what is something, if I asked your, your wife, your kids, what is something that just would only and could only happen to you? If I just said, man, that thing is just so totally torn, what would that thing be, that event? Um, maybe something you love to do. If I said that to them, what is just so totally you or that, you know, that would only happen to you? What would they, what would they tell me about you? Wow, that's a big question. Something you, that they would tell. Would only and could only happen to you, or that's just so totally you. It usually stumps yeah, people. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm gonna just. I, I I would say, you know, one reason why I have this little teddy bear over my uh, left shoulder is because a lot of people think that, you know, when they see me, I don't smile a lot in pictures, and you know, um, they 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 tend to think that I'm a a mean or very serious individual. Uh, so one thing that they would say is my nickname from my children is that he the mean old lion. You know, they used to call me when we when they were growing up, 
the mean old lion, like my, uh, my oldest son, he loved fire trucks and pretzels when he was a baby. And so whenever we would, you know, I'd go over to pick him up from the babysitter, he'd have on his fireman's hat. He'd have this big tub of pretzels from like Sam's club or something like that. And I had a big vehicle. And so he'd say, here come the bus, here come that mean old lion picking me up. So I, I think that, you know, if, if they were to say something, Yes, they think that I'm mean and serious, but they know deep down inside, like, I am just nothing but, you know, a teddy bear. Like, I absolutely love, and they know that I love them. So that's what I'd say. I love it. And I can attest to listen to back to this. You you absolutely love people. So, Torin, my man, what, where can people kind of keep connecting with you, learn more about your message, and, you know, kind of, you know, just really employ love in their lives through, through the, through the work that you do. Yeah. So first and foremost, I want to say congratulations to you for just staying committed to doing the podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm just happy that you are able to operate and willing to operate in that moment. You know, you might've set out saying, I'm going to do X or I'm going to record this often or whatever that has been. And even if it's unfolded differently, you've stayed committed. So congratulations to you for continuing to do the podcast ever since May of 2020, where people can find me across all of social media at Torin Ellis. Again, all of social media, I am at Torin Ellis. Like I'm so on Torin Ellis. I even have the blockchain version of Torin Ellis saved, torinellis.x. It doesn't go anywhere yet, but I still have it saved. So it's easy to find me. We might all be buying our fedoras one day from torinellis.s on the blockchain. So I'll put all your stuff in the notes. My man, Torin Ellis, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's been a pleasure, my man. Hey, gang. All right. Wow. You made it to the end. I know your time is valuable, so thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending your time here with me. If you heard a quote you liked, got a quick bit of value, or you have an idea that can help convince others to join, I urge you to take a minute and leave a five-star rating and review. That helps us gain influence and bring some really great guests on to add even more value to you and others. You can also always contact me directly to tell me your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. All my info is in the notes. Let's help convince anyone that they have the ability to sell well just by being great humans. And this podcast is proof. All right. See you on the next episode of Stories of Selling Human.